You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This is a bonus episode because we have lost an important woman. That is Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. She lay in repose today in the Capitol, and uh, one of our members, Harvey Brishikoff, was there. But today I am joined by two important women in their own right, both of whom have obviously been influenced by this very special woman, Sandra Day O'Connor. My guests are Elizabeth Rinskoff Parker, who's the former general counsel of both the CIA and the NSA, and Suzanne Spalding, former DHS undersecretary for what is now the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. I'm going to give you more on their bios at the end of this cast, but we're here to talk about the work of the late Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve as a Supreme Court justice. Thanks so much for coming in, you guys. I'm really glad you're here. It's good to see you. Great to be here, Alyssa. Thanks for pulling this together so quickly. Absolutely. Very timely. You know, I've got to give uh, credit to Holly here because you've both done such important work on civics education, but this was a passion of Justice O'Connor. Elizabeth, can you tell us what Justice O'Connor thought about civics and civics education and its importance to Americans? Before I even get to that important question, Liz, I'd say that some might wonder why are two people whose backgrounds really are national security talking about a remarkable woman who's known for the work she did in in civic education. And I think simply stated, Suzanne and I have concluded that our lack of civic education is really a national security threat, if you will. It's an imperative that we address this. But now really to your question, I might have said the first question might be, why was Justice O'Connor so compelled by the need to address civics education or the lack of civic education? And I think that is a question we may not know the answer to, but perhaps her background tells us something because it's an unusual background to be sure. As we know, she grew up in a very unusual farm, 2,000 acres, I think, in Arizona. And it was a really situation where you had to be competent and able to survive in a very different kind of world. And then she went on and became a lawyer. Of course, we know the story about Stanford and how she, when she graduated, wasn't able to find a paying job, but ultimately went on and became a leader. I think she was the first woman leader of a majority party in any state legislature and then on to state court. And of course, finally, the Supreme Court. And my question is, might some of those experiences put her into contact with people such that she concluded that civics education really was a problem, that there was a lack of understanding? Whether or no, she later commented that she thought the most important contribution she had made in her professional career was her leadership in trying to foster civic education. And she did this certainly after she stepped down from the court, but I think even before, and iCivics now would be perhaps the thing she's most known for. There's a wonderful institute as well in Arizona that bears her name. She was really a force. She obviously cared deeply about trying to encourage greater understanding about civics. It may be that part of this came as well from her concern about knowledge about the independence and the importance of independence and accountability for the court system, which she also wrote and talked about. Whatever the reasons for this, her contribution, I think, is unmatched. She clearly saw this as a vital need, as she put it, 
we can't just expect that a knowledge of civics will replenish itself as if we've all got something in our genetic makeup that transfers from one generation to the next. It has to be taught. And that, I think, was her passion and her concern. Okay. And you mentioned iCivics. That was an important tool that she was a part of developing. So Suzanne, can you talk a little bit about these tools that were created as a result of her work in this area on civics education? Absolutely. She was, you know, not only inspiring, but she was a very pragmatic kind of person who, if she took on an issue, she wanted to get things done and make sure that it actually made a difference. And so when she did step down in 2009, she actually started something called Our Courts, which was focused on providing interactive tools for students to try to reinvigorate the study of civics education. And that's what ultimately became iCivics, which is a terrific organization to this day that has a wide variety of online tools for students, for teachers, and has reached millions of students all across the country in how to write around civics and argumentative, persuasive essays, how to make a difference, as well as how to be informed. Elizabeth referenced the Arizona Sandra Day O'Connor Institute for Civics, and they too have a whole slew of online resources that people can go to really to reach folks of all ages to help them to be informed, but also really engaged citizens and participants in our democracy because she understood how incredibly important that is and The work that Elizabeth and I have been doing, um, particularly around the threats to public trust in our justice system, but to all of our institutions in democracy, and our belief that what Sandra Day O'Connor saw was that reinvigorating civics education was fundamental to sustaining our democracy. And that makes sense. I mean, the more you understand your government, the power that flows from you to your government, the better citizen you can be, the more you can coexist with your other Americans. Based on on sort of your knowledge of her approach to this, what work would she want to see continued after her life in this space? Certainly, she should feel good about the legacy she's left behind in terms of these institutions and, and organizations and the promotion of this civil discourse. I think you're absolutely right, Alyssa, was one that was really important to her and that we saw early in her career when she was in the Arizona State Legislature. She had a habit of inviting bipartisan group of legislators to dinner to help them get to know each other, but also to try to see if they couldn't come up with solutions, bipartisan solutions to very real problems. I think she'd want to make sure that that kind of effort at civil discourse, which is not just about being polite, but is about listening to and learning from each other. She once talked about the fact that Justice Thurgood Marshall had a huge impact on her and the way that she thought about problems because she listened and learned from him and the way he brought his life experiences to his work on the court. So she really lived this, and I think she would certainly hope that that would be something that the rest of us would help carry on. Yeah, I think the simple story about bringing everyone to lunch together is an example of, in a small way, something that she did that had an impact. That was her methodology to try and find common 
experiences that people could enjoy together and then engage in the conversations that are really vital and important. She was, as she was eulogized today, I think the glue of the court. And I think in a real way, she was hoping that through civic education, she could become a different kind of glue or that the organizations that that she created would become that glue. I don't think there is any question, but that she'd love to see iCivics continuing as well as the Sandra Day Connor Institute. But I suspect that she would applaud any of the many similar activities that have developed in part, I think, in response to the work and the education that she did in this area. Uh, I think we can't have enough of this. I think sooner or later, legislation to enable the kinds of work that she did would be would be wonderful as well. But for now, I think the kind of volunteer activities that are ongoing are essential, as well as making sure that people understand, as she did, the tremendous void we have in adequate civic education that is, what shall I say, almost every four years, it's revalidated by results in the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which once again this past spring showed disastrous results in what our students in the eighth grade here understand about civic education history and and so on. This was what she was really trying to combat. And I think one interesting story with regard to iCivics was she came up on that idea, as I recall her writing about this, because she was talking with a younger person and understood that what really motivated them were a, a different kind of learning experience, one that did take advantage of computer-assisted learning as well as a new way of, of looking at things. I suspect she'd, she'd have some interesting things to say about AI as well and what it might mean in terms of civic education. But she was a woman who I think was uniquely able to embrace new ways of thinking and doing things as long as it contributed to her basic concern about civic education. Alyssa, you know, you ask about her legacy. Interestingly, I had the opportunity to meet Justice O'Connor at the Ninth Circuit Judicial Conference in 2005. Elizabeth, you and I were both there with John Hamry and Tony Lewis on a panel. She was wonderful. I got my picture taken with her, and it's something I post in every office that I occupy with great pride. But she had an opportunity, of course, to address the group, and she gave a a very self-deprecating comments and read a, a little poem, and part went like this. Take a bucket, fill it with water, put your hand in it up to the wrist, pull it out, and the hole that's remaining is a measure of how you'll be missed. You may splash all you please when you enter. You can stir up the water galore, but stop, and you'll find in a minute that it looks quite the same as before. I think she was, this is one occasion in her life when she was wrong. The world is not the same after Sandra Day O'Connor was in it as it was before. And it's something that I think we have a real obligation to sustain in her honor. We do live in times of great divisions. Right now in there, have many people have expressed concern about the divide between the wealthy and the struggling in the United States and how we've seen that before in the world. We've seen that as a precursor to fascism, and but it's not inevitable. How did she see the role of civics education in bridging these really considerable divides that we see right now? Well, maybe going back to the writing that she did, about her time growing up on the ranch is one way to start. Among the people that she portrayed, as I remember that book, were some of very modest backgrounds, incomes, and 
in, in some cases, I think there was one cowboy who really didn't even read. And the way she treated and thought about them with such deep respect and admiration for their humanity and their decency and what they contributed to the common effort of keeping that ranch going. I think that she was someone who could reach across, what shall we say, the divide that sometimes separates us. There was a human quality to her that was really a very modest person, as Suzanne has described, but someone because of that who was easily approached and approachable. What I've read her to have said about the bridging the divide was that civics education, understanding that is a tool to enfranchisement. It's one of the tools that you need to move up in American society. And without it, you will struggle more. And I think that's probably correct. Any last thoughts on Justice O'Connor as we say goodbye to her today, the day of her funeral and the day on which she lies in repose in the Capitol? I do think that we should be inspired, but also have a sense of obligation, as I said, to make sure that the mark that she's made in this world, particularly in this area of making sure that we have the educated, informed, and engaged citizenry upon which democracy depends, that we are a part of carrying that forward, that we are advocates, continue to be advocates, all of us, for reinvigorating civics education in this country and recognize the role that each of us as individuals can play. She said, as a citizen, you need to know how to be part of it, our democracy, how to express yourself, and not just by voting. It is the role of the individual. It's the individual that can make things happen. And I think that is just such a great message for all of us to carry forward. And I would certainly endorse Suzanne's views as well. But going back to your earlier question, I think it's kind of interesting to note that she had some disquiet, I think, about her role in Citizens United because she felt that it was potentially distorting the way in which support for elections might be influenced by money in a way that would distort the voices of all people. And I think that that was a very wise and interesting comment. She was always careful, I think, to criticize her own decisions, but she did indicate that she was growing in her understanding that maybe that wasn't the ideal approach to have taken, that might in fact distort the way in which a system works so that we are all equally able to participate and engage in it. I'd say, too, one further comment about her as a person. For a brief period, I was in the same law firm with her husband, John O'Connor. It was touching to see how Sandra Day O'Connor dealt with his Alzheimer's when he began to lose his ability to recognize people. I remember at the same conference, Suzanne is mentioning that they were there together. They were a wonderfully talented pair of dancers and he was still able to do that. But you could tell that he didn't remember people and her care and attention to him was really touching and remarkable. And that of course is why many would feel she stepped down from her position in the court too early, but it was to take care of her husband, John O'Connor, and to be with him. And I think in a way she modeled decency, a decency that really is part of an important, I think, understanding of how our civil society needs to work. So as a person, she was herself, I think, modeling the best of us, not only in the wonderful institutions she created, 
But in, in the way in which she behaved, I think she did create a standard that we could all try to live up to. Well, on that absolutely lovely thought, I want to thank you both for coming in to talk about Justice O'Connor, someone who will be terribly missed, who's been of tremendous influence. And I thank you again for talking about civics education, such an important topic and such an important thing for our national security. It was good to see you both. Thank you, Alyssa. Nice to be with you. All right. And thank you for listening to National Security Law today. We're going to take a break over the holidays. We'll be returning to you in the new year. And we just want to thank everybody who is involved in this podcast, particularly the members of the standing committee, without whom we really couldn't pull this off. I am your writer and producer. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. The person who keeps this thing running behind the scenes is, of course, Holly McMahon, who is basically the boss of all of us at the end of the day and my co-producer. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to reach out to us on social media, you can do that. Our handle across platforms is at ABA NATSEC. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. We'll see you in the new year and wishing you peace, happiness, and tremendous national security and safety during this time. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.